0: I'm Jason Mark, the editor of Sierra Magazine, and this time on The Overstory.
1: It feels like December in
0: Maine. We head to Acadia National Park to see how scientists there are preparing
1: Maine's forests for a warming climate. Four out of five national parks are already at the extreme warm edge of historical condition, so we have to be talking about adaptation. And we hear from Deborah Graham in Dukeville, North Carolina,
0: a community built by Duke Energy and then poisoned by it.
2: The water's contaminated. You know, for 30 years, I didn't know of a coal ash pit. I had no idea.
0: And we talked to author and activist Paul Hawken about his new book, Drawdown. It's the self-declared most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming. That's no small claim. And we'll hear why Hawken is so sure that this plan will work and why global warming is a gift, not a curse.
3: Reversing global warming is a pathway that lead us to a much better outcome, much better world.
0: That's this time on The Overstory.
1: We have spruce and red oak, red maple, species native and, and common here today. And then these more southern species, the juniper and the honey locust, that aren't found here today, but are projected to have habitat in in the future.
0: On a decommissioned naval base on the coast of Maine, about a thousand seedlings huddle inside a wire fence under a layer of fresh snow. It looks kind of like a tiny tree farm, but actually it's a radical experiment in something called assisted migration. Madeline Ostrander has the story.
1: So there's a few different experiments that, that we have out here.
4: Nick Fezichelli is the forest ecology director at the Skudik Institute, the research center for Acadia National Park, and he's leading this experiment in what's called assisted migration, relocating species to a new habitat to help them survive decades from now, when things will get hotter, drier, and much more uncertain.
1: And next summer, we'll do the, the sampling to be able to look at some of the, the plant traits, the characteristics of these species, to get a sense for you know, what enables a species to do well here.
4: Beyond this research field, Acadia's dense forests are dominated by Maine's iconic red spruce trees, which spread across the park from one shore to the other.
1: It's in the background of everybody's vacation photos here in Acadia.
4: Back inside the research center, Nick reflects on some of the current data, and it doesn't look good for the red spruce. According to climate projections, that picture-perfect spruce could dwindle or die off in a matter of decades.
1: And it's a species that uh, is projected to lose about half of its suitable habitat under warming conditions.
4: If spruce can't take the heat and loses its lead role in these ecosystems, much of this national park and all of the wildlife, fish, and plants that live under the spruce's prickly canopy could be left vulnerable, unless another species shows up to fill the same ecological niche. That's where assisted migration comes in. Nick's research team is looking into what other kinds of trees might be able to live here if Maine becomes inhospitable to the red spruce.
1: It's interesting that the the coolest site in the experiment, all the species are doing best at that site, even even the more southern species, and it's because there's been more soil moisture.
4: Other trees have failed. Sweetgum, a tree that's common from the Carolinas all the way to the Gulf of Mexico, shot up in the summer of 2017, but withered in the winter cold.
1: There's different growth strategies that species have. Some of them are the James Dean, the, the live fast, die young kind of a strategy.
4: The idea of assisted migration is still relatively new and kind of controversial.
5: So I was very conflicted about it, or even just like, that. I don't think that we know enough to make the right decisions.
4: Kate Miller is a plant ecologist for the National Park Service. She keeps track of forest health in 20 parks on the East Coast, including Acadia. Some of Kate's research has helped shape Nick's assisted migration experiment. But, like many other scientists and conservationists, Kate felt a little weird about assisted migration, She wasn't sure it was a good idea to take a species from a distant location and drop it into an entirely new and unfamiliar ecosystem.
5: I was very hesitant about the idea because I didn't want to be making a decision that could create
4: another invasive species. For decades, the National Park Service has tried to avoid meddling in wild nature. Nick says the agency has long focused on conservation, not intervention.
1: For these protected areas that in the past have really had hands-off management, uh, it, it's it's definitely something that is is in a lot of cases new and different, and and to be honest, kind of uncomfortable to make those kinds of decisions.
4: But in the face of a crisis as vast as climate change, park managers wonder if they might need to take a more proactive approach.
1: Four out of five national parks are already at the extreme warm edge of historical conditions, so we have to be talking about adaptation. And there's a spectrum of adaptation strategies from resisting change to directing change. And somewhere in the middle is this sort of accommodating change or allowing things to change on, on their own. Parks have this postcard quality to the landscapes, but they aren't static images. And they're always changing. And... And so the, the creation of them, in, in one sense, is in itself a climate adaptation strategy in that we're trying to give species the time and place to adapt. But that may not always be enough. There may be more active interventions that managers will need to consider.
4: In other words, wild nature in the national parks is already changing in dramatic ways as the climate warms. And park managers have to decide whether they want to fight that change, let it happen, or try to steer it in a particular direction. This is a whole new way of thinking about nature. Some scientists still feel adamantly that people should let nature handle climate change on its own. After all, species have always adapted to climate change. Trees, for instance, have actually moved across big distances, but very slowly, one generation at a time, by dispersing their seeds sometimes with help from animals like squirrels and birds. But these days, it's harder for plants and animals to move and adapt because human development stands in the way.
5: There are major dispersal barriers in the mid-Atlantic part of the U.S., like around Washington, D.C., up through southeastern Pennsylvania. There's so little connectivity of forests that trees are probably not going to be able to migrate through that.
4: And the climate is changing so quickly, trees might need a little help.
5: Trees are not going to be able to migrate on their own very quickly, or at least on the scale that's important to us if we want forest. So I think assisted migration with a lot of thought and experimentation early on so we know how to make informed decisions is, uh, yeah, I think we need to do it.
4: The success of the experiment still remains to be seen. But Nick's hope is that the information can at least educate people about how to adapt to a new reality.
1: It's a tremendous opportunity. It's an opportunity to realize the dynamism of nature.
4: But, Nick says, the reluctance to intervene is understandable. In the past, even when humans tried to do right by nature, we haven't always known the best way to go about it.
1: A Couple years ago was the centennial of the National Park Service. And you see tremendous evolution just within what was considered good stewardship you know, early on in parks, things such as feeding wildlife was, was really standard. And even, you know, feeding the bears, that was actually part of the park experience. And parks literally would put up bleachers out at the, at the dump, and you could go and watch the bears eat trash.
4: So we now know that feeding the bears wasn't such a good idea. And maybe moving tree seedlings will fall into that camp. Conservation is an ongoing experiment.
1: The reality of today is that climate change is happening, it's ongoing, and, and climate adaptation has become a, a really important aspect of stewardship. And it means using some new tools and considering things that hadn't been considered in, in the past. And, and I think that's a real, a real challenge, but something a conversation that we need to have.
4: But that conversation isn't all bad. Kate Miller is excited about the potential impact of assisted migration and the positive effects it could have.
5: And so in some ways, it's this grand experiment. It's exciting as ecologists to see what's going to happen. And I would like to think that we can help reverse the course of some of these problems. In 20 years, if you ask me, how are things going? Hopefully, I'm able to say, well, you know, 20 years ago, we discovered these problems in forest health. And here's how we dealt with them. And we're better off because of it. I would like to think that that is what will happen.
4: For the overstory, I'm Madeline Ostrander.
0: To read Madeline Ostrander's full article, go to our website, sierramagazine.org. Now, some advice on sustainable living from our own advice columnist, Mr. Green. Today, we've got a question from Bruce in California about solar panels.
6: Hey, Mr. Green, this is Bruce from Pleasanton, California.
7: Hi there, how are you?
6: I'm doing well. Thanks for taking my call. The electricity we use at home is California Grid Solar, but we still have natural gas for heating and hot water, and we'd love to close the gas account. I wanted to ask you we could get a heat pump for room heating and cooling, but what could we use? for our hot water. What would you recommend?
7: Uh Uh-huh. Well, tankless gas is pretty efficient. You save about 30 or 40% of of the energy that you would otherwise use with a tank heater. So that would be the best option at this point as far as water heating goes. Now, in the future, the price of the others may go down. I, I can't predict that. I think you'd be okay with that for now unless you want to cut your gas off completely.
6: Just recently, we got rooftop solar panels, hooray, in fact, so recently that we're still waiting for approval to flip the switch and start <laughs> running the meter backwards. And it should, according to the engineers, produce about 1,000 kilowatt hours per year more than we've been using. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, rather than accept the utilities not-so-generous $0.03 cents a kilowatt hour for our excess electrons, that maybe a, a tankless electric water heater would make sense.
7: It might, in California especially. In fact, in California, total electric house is now feasible, according to the University of California. So uh, I can't say what it would be in terms of expenses, but in terms of your contribution to global warming, you might be... Better off with that electric water heater,
6: yes. We made the house very energy efficient at the start of the process.
7: So you've insulated and double-paned windows and you've got weather stripping?
6: Weather stripping and LED lighting and high-efficiency appliances.
7: Oh, that's that's pretty good.
6: (laughs) And then we had a detailed energy audit because I really wanted to know, is there anything else we could do? Because th- this was not a house that was built to a high standard. <laughs> and, and we knew, you know, there would be gaps in the insulation and the walls and things like sure, that. Sure, sure. And the engineers said, really, there's nothing left much that you could do that would pay back.
7: Well, it sounds like you are almost an ideal case.
6: We're, we're, we're trying. We're pretty typical you know, suburban Californians. Uh, There are a lot of houses like ours that we, you know, wanted to see is it really practical to make it better.
7: Oh, my goodness. You're doing great. I think you're an ecological saint. (laughs) Keep up the good work.
6: Thanks, Mr. Green. You know, I think we all have to do what we can, and we're uh, just looking to see if we can uh, get this old house to be uh, performing the way that more houses need to be. Very good. Appreciate your input.
0: That was Bob Shilgen with Ask Mr. Green. He's our advice columnist for Sustainable Living. If you've got a question about how to reduce your environmental impact, just go online, sierramagazine.org, look for the Mr. Green tab, send Bob a question, and if you're lucky, we'll have you on the show to talk to Bob himself. Deborah Graham has lived in Salisbury, North Carolina for 30 years. The town was nicknamed Dukeville because everything there seemed to revolve around Duke Energy, one of the country's largest utilities. Now, everything in Deborah's life seems to revolve around something so simple as finding clean water. That's because toxins from coal ash pits set up by Duke Energy have leaked into the town's water supply. Here's Deborah's story.
2: when I first realized that there was a problem. We were down at the beach house, and and my neighbor called and said, Hey, Deb, y'all might want to come home. There's going to be a meeting at the fire station. I think you need to be there. And they were talking about, y'all need to be concerned as a community. You've got three pits back here. And I didn't even know that. They could burst, you know. It's made up of earth and dam. There's nothing underneath of it. It leaks into the ground. And y'all should be concerned about your water. You know, for 30 years, I didn't know of a coal ash pit it is not a pond. You know, a pond, you would think of Andy Griffith skipping rocks, um, fishing. These are not ponds. These are pits. They're dark. They're gloomy. They were some people that were really upset. Their kids had been sick. I had no idea. We got a letter, a little postcard from the state in December saying, we would like to test your well. You're within 1,000 feet of a, of a co-ash impoundment. April 18, 2015. A Saturday morning, we'd got up. I was walking good, so we decided to go do a little bit of work out in the yard, pulling some weeds. The mail lady, she goes, Hey, Deb, I got a letter here. Y'all need to sign. And we're like, Ooh, got a letter. My husband signed it. She gave him the mail. And I was sitting at our kitchen bar, last little bit of coffee. And I said, Ooh, who's it from? He said, "Oh, it's from the state. And he opened it up. I'm sitting at the bar, drinking coffee. And he... um. I was reading it to himself, and I saw this look come over his face—unbelievable look come over his face—and he said, uh, "The water's contaminated." Had coffee in my mouth, and I went, "What? Our our water's contaminated?" And then I take the paper from him, and I'm looking at it, and I'm reading it, and and I just swallowed this coffee. I mean, I'd had a whole cup of coffee. You know, I drank it every day, and we drank tea, and we drank Kool-Aid, and and it was all made out of that spigot water, you know, out of the kitchen. And I'm reading the paper, and it says, do not use your water for food, for cooking, or, or for drinking. To have your whale listed as contaminated from the state, it changes everything you do. It changes your life. 889 days we've been living on bottled water for my family, Duke Energy is now providing water to us. I've got three stacks of water in the house and in my dining room, two or three piles high in the um, living room as a side table, and then I'm using the gallon jugs. i got it sitting all around my kitchen. Everything we do revolves around water now, and I would stay up at 11, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning, and I'm reading articles. If it was real good, I'd print it just so I could read it again. I'd have it laid all over my bed in my room, and I think about water all the time. I don't hate Duke Energy. I love having electricity. Yeah, I love having air conditioning and heat and power. I don't hate Duke Energy. And, you know, people can't believe that. But I don't. I mean, I need them. I need them. I just need them to do the right thing.
0: Last month, I had the chance to sit down and talk with writer and activist Paul Hawken. He's the editor of the book Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming. Hawken is an entrepreneur. He's an author of many books. And I think it's fair to say he's something of a visionary. He's also an environmentalist with an optimistic take on climate change. He says global warming is a gift, not a curse. Paul, thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it.
3: Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for bringing me to the chair Club.
0: I want to start with a remedial question. What do you mean by drawdown? Like, what does drawdown mean, especially in the context of climate change and global greenhouse gas emissions?
3: You draw down troops, you draw down a well, you draw down your checking account. In this case, drawdown applied to climate is the first time on a year to year basis where greenhouse gases peak and go down. And I thought that was important to name the goal. We're still using words like mitigate and curb and stabilize, you know, none of which is really what we want. I mean, they may be sort of steps on the way to what we want, but nobody's really has named what the goal is, and that is to reverse global warming, without which there won't be a civilization. So why don't we just, first of all, name the goal? And that's why Drawdown was used as the title of the book.
0: And you've got a great metaphor. I think it's in the foreword word orange, in- your introductions, pointing out... You know, if you're on a road to disaster and you simply start to slow down, that's insufficient. You will eventually still reach disaster. The trick is either getting on a different road or making some kind of
3: U-turn. Stop and turn around. Yeah. We're using very wussy, weak, limp, and non-motivating verbs, you know, to describe the actions that we should be undertaking. Okay, reduce. Is that what you want to do? Reduce, you know? Mitigate means to reduce the pain and seriousness of something. And if you go into a hospital and you're all smashed up from a car accident and they give you Vicodin and they've mitigated, you're still all smashed up. Yeah. That is one of the many ways in which the climate movement, broadly described, has basically uh, learned how to alienate, numb, or turn off people.
0: So much of the climate change conservation is, is really focused almost exclusively on our energy systems. And it's clear that energy is a huge part of the problem, but it's not the whole part of the solution, right? You've got a a huge number of the responses that you guys point to are based in natural systems, silvopasture, regenerative agriculture. I wonder if you could talk about those and how when you guys were sort of starting this process, knowing that you had to break out from just having an energy conversation.
3: Well, the great thing about the process is we didn't know, and we knew we didn't know, and we also knew that no one else knew because what we set out to do was to map, measure, and model the 100 most substantive solutions to reversing global warming. Well, I think all of us have a bias. I had a bias about what they were, at least the top three or four or five. Certainly solar, wind, and, you know, as I say jokingly, Elon Musk, you know, there was EVs, you know, that was energy, electrical energy generation and transport cars, etc. And I would assume that those have been the top three what I was interested in what were the next 97. And that's where I was foggy. But I have to say that when we sort of hit the total button on the model, and we looked at the top 10 and 20 solutions, we're going, oh my gosh, you know, who knew... And the fact that refrigerant management came out, number one, I thought, oh, my, this is a PR disaster. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody will have no credibility at all. But it's true that, I mean, combustion of fossil fuels is 60-plus percent of the emissions on a yearly basis are from combustion. So it stands to reason that the main solution is the converse of that, which is clean energy. But actually, the way out is not the way in or the way in is not the way out. In other words, it doesn't make sense because even if we went to clean energy today, right, we could just snap our fingers and it's done, presto, we would still be in deep, deep trouble because of the levels of CO2 and greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and the fact that we haven't addressed the other causes of greenhouse gases.
0: And CO2's persistence. It's six and CO2's runful. persistence,
3: exactly. In other words, you've, it's up there, it's just going to stick around. We do not whistle past the graveyard of the science, not at all. We are just vastly respectful and aware of the threats that that beckon and and that are looming, but at the same time, what we feel is, got it, understood, thank you, now let's work on the solutions. Let's work on the possibility that's innate in this gnarly, super-wicked problem as opposed to repeating the problem over and over in different ways and reminding people that we're up a creek without a paddle and it's getting worse every day because that doesn't engender participation. It engenders numbness, despair, um, denial from some people because facts don't change people's beliefs.
0: And so it's really about having an action plan that's going to, again, resolve those those issues, those the despair that people have.
3: Well, sure. I mean, because I think people all care. They all care about their children. They care about, you know, their family, their community. They care about the things that we all care about. I don't think people are any different at all. And at the same time that climate action has been perceived as a threat, as an outlier, as something that's going to undermine people's security, and both food security, both their uh, personal security, economic security, I think that's not true. I mean, in fact, I know it's not true. When you look at these 100 solutions, 98 of them are things we would want to do, no regret solutions, if we didn't have a single climate scientist alive and we had no idea what was causing extreme weather. We would want to do those 98 solutions because... Anyway. Anyway, the benefits they have for women, children, work, prosperity, water, innovation. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And so the idea that somehow the solutions to reversing global warming are sort of over there somewhere, and I have a business to run, I have an economy to run, I have a country to run, is actually upside down and backwards.
0: Of the top 10 solutions, two of them are social issues, and that's educating girls and... Family planning. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and and whether that was a surprise. Again, when you hit the sort of go button and and the and the algorithm or whatever you had ranked them, that those came out respectively, number six and seven.
3: Catherine Wilkinson, we co-wrote the book. She is a scholar, Oxford PhD, and she said, I'll do the research. And she came out with just an incredible amount of research and uh, wrote that particular piece. Educating girls is really another pathway to family planning, and girls that receive a high school equivalent education and supported to do so behave in a very different way. They become a woman on more or less their terms instead of somebody else's terms, and they're not forced to go to work to put their brothers through school, and they are smarter, they earn more money. Uh, they want to have less children and put more of their resources, which they have more of, into those children so that they do not have the same experience in childhood that this woman had or this girl had. And so it's one pathway to family planning, and then the other pathway to family planning is clinics, family planning. And But we want to break them out because they're actually very different solutions. They just end up in the same outcome. And you put them together, and they are the number one solution and right now, as I said, we're talking about it as a way of, like, it's kind of dread instead of, like— um, Possibility. The, possibility and celebration. Like, global warming is a gift. It's not a curse.
0: A gift in terms of being able to open up just the potentialities of, of new routes, of new ways of living, being, doing?
3: Any system that North feedback dies your body does it's a system you ignore feedback it's giving you know you're getting sick your fever this that you whatever the feedback is you just ignore it and override it you'll die so the earth is a system and so global warming is feedback and feedback is a gift to the whole so it is actually something we should be grateful for so again using war metaphors about it like to fight and combat and so forth is actually the mindset that created the problem which is that everything's separate different other It's not me, it's other. Creating fear is the mindset that caused global warming. And so creating fear to solve it won't work. And rather, we need literacy, but we also need to understand that it's a super wicked gnarly problem to be sure, but every problem is a solution in disguise. That's what a problem is, global warming. Not surprisingly, it is just a plethora of transformative solutions that lead us to a much better outcome, much better world than the one we're in now. So actually, reversing global warming is the pathway to all the things that actually people say they want, politicians say they'll do, you know, people promise they'll do as CEOs, but actually, in fact, oftentimes do the opposite.
0: Paul Hawken, thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it and sharing this this wisdom and this inspiration.
3: Jason, it's a delight. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Now, as always, we're going to close out the show with a soundscape from recording artist Bernie Krause. This is some tape that he gathered over many years at Sugarloaf Mountain State Park outside of California's Napa Valley. Listen real closely, because what you're going to hear is the sound of the natural world becoming quieter and quieter and quieter as global warming makes itself felt. Take a listen. The Overstory is produced by Josephine Holtzman and Isaac Kestenbaum at Future Projects Media with help from Danielle Roth. Our theme music is by Jeff Bradsky. This episode was mixed by Dara Hirsch. Next time, we talk to a young British activist who is paddleboarding across rivers throughout England to pick up trash and to send something of a message. I'm Jason Mark, and you've been listening to The Overstory.